Our epistle lesson this morning is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We are reading there verses 1 through 10. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before your word this morning and we yield ourselves to you. We ask that you will send forth your light and your truth and that you will lead us and guide us into all truth. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. It's critical in life to always read the fine print. I learned this lesson the difficult way in attempting to care for my yard. I had a nice spread of fescue grass in northern Virginia, but yet I had a crabgrass infestation happening, crabgrass creeping over from my neighbor's yard. And so I set out to go to war against the crabgrass. Did some research, bought some chemicals that I could affix to the hose and then spray. I was eager to attack. And so I ignored the small instruction booklet on the side of the bottle and went about my war against the crabgrass. Very quickly, I noted that the bottle was empty. And I'd only sprayed one area of the yard, and the bottle was supposed to be diffused across the whole yard, front and back. And I'd only covered about a 10 by 10 section. I thought, well, there's probably not too much to it. I decided to open the fine print, the instruction booklet there, where there was red letters that said, warning. (laughs) And then in the instruction booklet, there was pointed out a small little dial that was underneath the handle that I had not seen, and that was to control the flow of the chemicals as they combined with the water. And that was to enable the chemicals to then be spread throughout the whole yard. I had not read the fine print, and I totally missed the instruction. I learned my lesson the next day when I returned from work, and I had won the war against the crabgrass. I'd killed everything else along with it as well. In that little 10 by 10 area, it was all brown. And we're subject to somewhat of a similar dynamic as Christians. There's much that God says, but there's much that we would choose to ignore. 
certain aspects of God's revelation of himself that we simply want to overlook because it's inconvenient or perhaps it's challenging. Whatever reason it might be, we just don't want to pay attention to everything that he says. Psalm 119 is one of those places in the Bible that will have none of it because the psalm seeks to speak comprehensively. And the psalm seeks to speak completely about what it looks like for our lives to be intersected by the revelation of God to human beings. God reveals himself to us in his works and in his ways. He reveals himself to us in his promises and his precepts. He reveals himself to us in his covenant and in his counsels. And we learn about who he is. But this is not the only thing that we learn in Psalm 119. It's not simply about God. We learn not only of God himself, but we learn of ourselves. God teaches us who we are in front of him, what it means to be his creature and what it means to be his servant. And he teaches us how we are to interpret the various experiences and emotions of our lives. And one of the regular experiences of human life is that universal human experience of adversity and affliction. And Psalm 119, from the very early verses all the way to the end, acknowledges that adversity, the reality of adversity and affliction. The psalm speaks in verse 22 of knowing scorn and contempt. In verse 25, the psalmist envisions himself as clinging to the dust of death. In verse 42, there's the taunts of an adversary, an opponent. In verse 113, there's the hypocrisy and double-mindedness that takes place in the church. In verse 143, there's trouble and anguish pictured there as hunting us down. And finally, in the final verse of the psalm, speaks about our own fickleness and unfaithfulness to God, that we're like lost sheep. There are opponents and there are problems. There are setbacks and there are struggles, there are trials and there are temptations. We face great adversity and affliction in the Christian life. Our Lord Jesus has promised this much. And that adversity is not to be ignored. It is highlighted for us in Psalm 119. And so what does God exactly teach us about those experiences of adversity and affliction? How are we to interpret these things? And this is a long psalm, and there's much to say, so I have no less than five points for you this morning about how we are to interpret adversity and affliction. First, we learn about the tension that our Christian faith creates. If you look in verses 81 and 82 with me, my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? Both of these verses begin with the verb to long, and it's important to grasp the strength of this verb in the original language because it means something just more than to long, to want, but it means something more like I faint or I am exhausted by, I am at the end of myself as I wait for your salvation. It is said twice for emphasis. 
And friends, this is the tension of the Christian life, that we are fainting. We are at the end of ourselves waiting for God's salvation. And when we look at the whole narrative of Scripture, there are three things that we could say that are a summary of everything God reveals. That first, we learn about the original design of creation, when the wor- what the world was intended to be. And then second, we learn about the current reality that exists because of human rebellion, the turn against God. That is, we learn what the world is. But the final and third thing we learn is we learn about the future renovation of all things. What God intends to make the world, what the world will be when God applies the resurrection powers that he brought Jesus out of the dead with, when he applies those to all of creation. And friends, that is the story in which we live, the overarching biblical narrative And we live in the tension between what the world was intended to be and what the world will be. And we live in the current reality, the current crisis of human rebellion and the turn in sin. And friends, this is the trouble that assaults us. In that broken place, there is trouble. There is adversity. There is difficulty. And because we know of what is coming, we are exhausted and we long And so, yes, your Christian faith creates a certain tension in which you're fainting and longing for the world as it will be when God sends our Lord Jesus back to renew all things, to bring evil and sin into judgment, and to purge the world, and to make the world righteous and pure and clean, excelling even what it was originally created as. That's the tension of the Christian life. The second thing we learn, we learn about the dynamic of resistance as we experience this adversity. If you follow with me in verses 49 through 56, here we see the dynamic of how we encounter adversity in order not to be overtaken by it. If you read with me in verse 49 and 50, remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. And so this section of the psalm begins by asking God to remember his word. And then a few verses later in verse 55, it says that I remember your name. And so there are two things going on in which we remember God's word, we remember his promise, and we ask him to remember us in accord with that promise. Now, we ask God to remember his promise not because he has amnesia, not because he's forgotten, but this concept in the Old Testament of God remembering things is so that God will uh, act in accord with what he has promised to do and to be. And so we bring the promise that God has sworn in his son, we bring that promise to him, and we say, God, act in accord with this on your servant's behalf. And so that's the goal of asking God to remember things. And so we meditate deeply upon the promises that God has given us in Jesus, and then we ask God to treat us in accord with those promises. This is how we counter the pressures that adversity and affliction bring into our lives. This is the dynamic in which we live. We've all known this in various ways. This week, as I 
reflected on this, I was reminded of experiences early on when Melissa and I, at 33 years old, moved to Washington, D.C. with our two young sons. Mackenzie was not yet to be. We moved into a small apartment. We were on a shoestring budget. We didn't have very much financial capital, and we were in a very expensive part of the city in which we were asked to plant a church. We had a small core group that was being formed, and then the financial crash of 2008 happened. We had moved in March of 2008, and then October, everything was falling apart. 10% of our little core group was unemployed. There was a large political turnover that fall. It was all a mess. And I remember frequently meditating upon Philippians 4.8. The promise there is, my God shall provide all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And I remember holding on to that. Because my experience of life in that moment was not knowing where provision was going to come from. How all of this was going to work out how my family was going to be provided for, how my job was going to be secure. There was great anxiety, significant adversity and affliction during those early days of establishing the church. There are many stories that could be told from that experience, but one of them that stuck out to me was in a time where finances were difficult. I officiated at a wedding, and the family who I didn't connect with to any great extent at the wedding, they seemed slightly distant. But after it was all over, I received a small envelope. Weeks later, it was mailed to me. And it's customary for people to give some kind of check to the pastor on the backside of officiating wedding. That happens, it's not necessary. But this family was so moved by what had happened, watching their daughter be married off to a godly young man. There was some reinvigoration of their own personal faith and there was a very large, significant, substantive check there in the mail, completely unexpected. And I knew immediately, this wasn't because I performed well. This is because I had been asking God to remember me according to his promises in Jesus. That those words I had been praying from Philippians 4, God had remembered me. And my duty at that point was to then give thanks to him, to offer praise to him, because he had seen our needs, and he had provided for us in an inexplicable way. And friends, this is the way that we counter the pressures of adversity. We entrust ourselves to God and put faith in his promise, and we present to him our needs, and we allow him to resolve those in his own wisdom. It's the dynamic of resistance. Third, we also learn about the benefit of adversity. If you follow with me in verses 71 and 72, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. And undoubtedly, this is one of the most difficult aspects of biblical faith for all of us to absorb. And that is that adversity and affliction work together in God's wisdom for our good. I wish it were some other way. I wish I had another word to relay to you today, but it simply is not what God reveals. Rather, what God reveals to us is that through experiences of adversity and affliction that we grow deeper in our faith. 
It is here that the gospel and all the goodness of God becomes richer and fuller to us. It becomes worth more than gold and silver, the psalm says. Friends, this is the fruit that comes out of adversity. And that when we enter into affliction, we have to entrust ourselves to God that he has his good purposes, that he will work. Even if someone else intends that adversity for evil, that evil is not greater than God himself, and he'll use it for our good. Martin Niemöller was a German pastor. He was the head of the confessing church during the Second World War. That was the church that resisted the Nazi political regime. He was seen as an enemy, and so he was locked in solitary confinement for four years in the Dachau prison. After the war was over, he was asked about his experience. Listen to what he says about God's word. The word of God was simply everything to me. Comfort and strength, guidance and hope, and even more, solitary confinement ceased to be solitary. A man taught by adversity that he was not alone, that God was with him in his word, revealing his truth to him, that his adversity could be of great benefit. And that's the challenge for us, friends, is when adversity and when affliction strikes, when it comes our way, when it visits us in our house, in the house of our sojourning, that we not be crushed by it, but we entrust ourselves to God and we entrust ourselves to his good purposes. We draw near to him. Fourth, and related to the last point, we learn about God's secret reserve. This is what happens in all adversity. If you turn with me towards the end of the psalm, find this in verse 156 and 157. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. Several weeks ago, I sat down with a friend, and he was recalling the last two years of experience that we have all here at Christ Church had as a community. He was recalling that we were, as a family, vacationing around Christmas break and brought back to Jacksonville due to a crisis. A crisis that our entire community weathered together with grace and beauty. That was only kicking off 2019. We were then removing ourselves from the building, clearing out 25 years of junk, and we went into the great Ramada Inn, our time of exile. This cut off many of our community functions. We simply had the ability to meet in Bible studies around the city and to gather for worship. That was to last for seven to eight months, we thought, maybe nine, and it went on for 11. And we endured the Ramada. At the end of the Ramada, we met the coronavirus, coming back to our brand new, freshly renovated building, and yet we were compromised, not being able to do everything we had dreamed about. Plans and preparations that had been made for months, hopes and expectations dashed. What in the world? What in the world do you do with all that? In thinking about that, Psalm 119 gives a very personal and important answer to me and to you and to us as a community. 
that yes, when our adversities increase, when our adversities are multiplied, what we learn, because this is what we have learned as a church together, that the mercies and the grace of God are multiplied still more. That at every turn, in every adversity, in every affliction, he has met every one of our needs over the last two years, and far more than that, in the 35 years of this church's existence, and in all the days of your life that you've known him. He doesn't fail you. There's a secret reserve that's waiting for you. As your adversities multiply, the grace of God will multiply exponentially. It's there for you, and it's waiting. His mercies are more. And finally, we also learn from Psalm 119 about our great privilege in the midst of adversity. If you'll follow with me in verse 94. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. In reading this psalm repeatedly through the summer, this became my favorite verse for meditation. Profound, simple words. I am yours. Save me. Many people struggle with the second half of the phrase, for I have sought your precepts. The psalmist is not here saying, I've obeyed you, therefore you are in my debt and need to do something on my behalf. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I am yours. I have believed, I have entrusted myself to you. Come and act in accord with who you've promised to be. We have to remember that the word precept stands for the word covenant. And so this is how God deals with us graciously in Jesus. And so we have sought the truth of God. We've entrusted ourselves to the gospel of God. We belong to him by grace. And then we ask God, because we are his servants, come deliver me. That's the privilege that only you have as a son and a daughter of God. It's to be able to cry out to him and say, Abba, Father, come deliver me. According to your promise, I am yours and you are mine. That's the privilege of a son or a daughter who's been reconciled to God, the Father, through the true Son, Jesus, that we gain, then gain access. We gain that privilege of coming to him freely. We belong to him in Jesus. We are his. Adversity and affliction, when it comes, and it always comes, is never pleasant. But there is this great reserve of grace, and there is this great privilege, and there is this great freedom that we have in the midst of that universal human experience of suffering, that we have a good and wise God who uses it for our good. We have a good and wise God who we can call upon freely and say, I am yours, save me. Adversity and affliction can become friends in a very strange way. And so let's entrust ourselves to God. And let's trust that he alone is the one who can teach us and guide us about what it means to faithfully experience these things. Let's pray. Father, we know that our Lord Jesus has promised that we will experience sorrow and hardship in this life. And because of the brokenness and the sin of our world, we certainly taste it. It visits every one of us. But God, we ask 
that you will teach us and that you will guide us into your truth about how to experience these things, how to understand them, how to interpret them. We need your help. We're weak and we're dependent creatures, but we know you are our loving Father and have done everything to reconcile us to you through your Son, Jesus. And so we hold fast to every one of your promises. They're all yes and they're all amen in him. And so we pray in his name, amen.